Delighted that you're here. We have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. I encourage you to get a Bible and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. We'll be looking at some things in chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in just a few moments. Before we get to chapter 6, I want to go back and review a little bit. We've looked at some things in chapters 4 and 5, and in my mind, those three chapters locked together in a nice fashion, and we'll see more about that here in just a moment as we tie them together again, hopefully. 2 Corinthians is the most personal of Paul's letters that we have been talking about as we've made our run through chapters 4 and 5, and then we'll close those three chapters by looking at chapter 6. But chapters 1 through 7 is the first section of the book where Paul is defending his apostleship and his ministry. And in chapters 1 through 7, he talks about his genuine apostleship and the joy over the first letter. That is, the first letter was received well as he had sent that to them, but he defends his apostleship because that's what's under attack. Uh, there were those Judaizing teachers who were questioning his genuineness, his apostleship. He's not a genuine apostle. He's lied. He's told us he was coming. He didn't come. He uh, doesn't do what he says. They made every kind of attack against him, and he defends his apostleship in light of all of that. And so that's where we are in chapters 1 through 7. Now let's go back to chapter 3 just for a moment to tie chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6 together. Chapter 3, it talked about how they were ministers of the new covenant. Look at verse 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 6. We also made us, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, he said. We're ministers or servants of the new covenant. Now chapter 4 grows out of that when he talks about, therefore since we have this ministry, verse 1. So chapter 4 talks about since we have this ministry, we're ministers of the new covenant, he said. Since we have this ministry. So chapter 4 is focusing on the consequences or results or the impact of serving God. Chapter five, 4 and verse 5 says that we are servants for Jesus' sake. We're going to see that phrase time and again. We're servants or we're ministers uh, for the sake of the Lord or we're ministers of Christ. So chapter 4 focused on the impact of serving Christ. We saw that the impact of being a servant of Christ is we don't faint, we don't draw back, we renounce the world. The sole objective is to Christ and we should be willing to suffer persecution. Now Paul is talking about himself, obviously. But there is something to be learned from, from Paul about us that our sole objective should be to preach Christ. We should be willing to suffer. We should renounce the world and worldly practices and we should not faint. Chapter 5, last time we talked about reasons for service. Paul talks about what makes him do what he does. What gives him his drive? Why do you do what you do? Why would you go to a city and preach knowing they're going to beat you and run you out of the city? Why would you do that? Well, here's why. Because of the hope of eternal life, to be accepted of God, because there is a judgment coming, because of the love of Christ, and because we've been commanded to go preach. Now, those same principles in some way, shape, form, or fashion applies to us as motives for doing what's right. Now, let's come to chapter 6. Chapter 6 I call demands of service or demands of the ministry. There are demands that are made to, of us because we're servants of Christ. Now again, Paul is talking about himself. And we'll talk about the ways in which this applies to him. There are lessons to be learned as it applies to us as we talk about the demands for service. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 6. 
What is demanded of us because of our service to God? Do you claim to be a servant of God? You say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, then you are a servant of God. You're a minister of God. You're a servant of Christ. So what is demanded of you because you are a servant of Christ? What's demanded of you? Chapter 6 answers that question, and he answers that here for himself. Now, verses 1 to 13, there's two major thoughts in chapter 6. The first is to walk worthy, verses 1 to 13. That is, it is demanded of those who are the servants of God to walk worthy of the calling which they have been given. We see that in Ephesians 4. He doesn't use the word worthy here, but we're going to talk about living blameless, and we'll get to that here in just a second. So let's notice in verses 1 and 2, he makes an appeal to them, do not receive the grace of God in vain. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you haven't already turned there, this is a textual study. You'll benefit more if you have the text in front of you, so perhaps you've got a phone or an electronic device or maybe a hard copy of your Bible. I encourage you, let's get it open and let's follow along the textual study. Notice at verse 1, we as workers together with him, the fellow workers or workers together is not a picture of Paul being a worker with others, that is, I'm a fellow worker with you, but we are fellow workers with God. In other words, we're working with God. And that grows out of the concept in chapter 4 of that we are ambassadors for Christ. So we're co-workers with God working on your behalf. That's his point. So therefore, as we, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now what's his point here? Well, the Corinthians had received the grace of God. They already are Christians. They had already obeyed the gospel. Go back to chapter 4 and verse 18. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That included his recipients. That is, the, the Corinthian church, those brethren there had, been, uh, had received the grace of God. Now, notice in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, back up one letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about how ungodly they had been. They had been in a, in a pagan world and they had been fornicators and idolaters and adulterers, homosexuals and sodomites and thieves and covetous and drunkards. But some of you, but such as were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. They had received the grace of God. Yet that grace was under attack. And that's the point of the letter. That grace that they had received is under attack. That was also the point of the first letter. So let's review some things in the first letter that suggest, as he had written to them before, that grace was under attack. Without reading all of the references, chapter 3 shows they were carnal-minded. That is, they were thinking like men and behaving like men. They were arguing among themselves, I'm of Paul. No, 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 I'm not of, I'm of Apollos. No, 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 I'm of Cephas. That's carnally-minded. They made themselves followers of men as if men were philosophers. So you're behaving carnally and as children and as babes. Furthermore, they had sour attitudes. They were puffed up, he said in chapter 4. And that is, they were puffed up one against the other. I think that's talking about spiritual gifts, thinking I've got a better gift and I'm superior to you or I'm inferior because I don't have the same gift. And in chapter 12, he says, I show you a more excellent way, which was love. They were lacking in love. So they were lacking in love. They had a sour attitude. There was a problem with worldliness. There was a fornicator in their midst they had tolerated. Not only that, there seems to be in chapter 6 a defense of fornication growing out of their pagan concept, meat for the body and body for the meats. That is, when the body's hungry, you satisfy it with meats. And when the body has desires, you satisfy it with fornication. What's the difference? That seems to be the argument some were making. 
So they had a problem with worldliness. There had seemed to be irreverence in worship. Chapter 11, they'd abused the Lord's Supper and made a common meal out of that. So they were irreverent, irreverent in worship. They had been influenced, chapter 11 of this book, 2 Corinthians, by false teachers. There were those who were false prophets who were making some inroad and in impacting them concerning the apostleship of the apostle Paul. So that grace is under attack and had been under attack. So there was a danger faced here. Now let's go back to chapter 6 and verse 1. He said, I make an appeal or I plead with you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? That means there's a danger. There's a danger of them being led astray from their pure devotion in Christ. Look at chapter 11 now. Same book, 2 Corinthians 11 and in verse 3. But I fear, what's your fear, Paul? Lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He said, I'm fearful. I see a danger for the church at Corinth. What's the danger you see, Paul? They could be led away from the simplicity in Christ. The English standard renders that from your pure devotion to Christ. You could easily be led astray from that. There is a danger. Their salvation is in jeopardy. How so? They're to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13 and in verse 5. And if that be the case then, their grace could have been received to no avail. They had embraced the grace of God, received the forgiveness of sins, but if they turned from it, the receiving the grace was of no avail. That's the idea of receiving the grace of God in vain. So it could be, you could be receiving the grace of God in vain. You say, have I received? Oh yeah, you received the grace of God. When, when you obeyed the gospel, you received the forgiveness of sins. And you have the hope of eternal life. You've received the grace of God. But if you do anything to turn from that, or someone influences you to go from that, the recepting, receiving of the grace of God was all for nothing because it doesn't avail you anything. So Paul said, I appeal to you. I want you to walk worthy. Because if you don't, you've received the grace of God in vain. Now notice verse 2 is in close connection with that. Verse 2 says, For he says, In an accepted time I have heard you, and the day of salvation I have helped you. That's from Isaiah 49 and verse 8. So speaking of the Messiah, by the way, that in the accept, now is the time of salvation. And then he goes at the rest of verse 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. And behold, now is the day of salvation. I hear that quoted many times, and it's not necessarily an improper application, but I hear it quoted many times in this context, you need to obey the gospel today and not put it off till, say, Wednesday night, because now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. You need to obey the t- today versus putting it off till tomorrow. That's really not the force of this passage. That's not his, there are passages that talk about that. I would go to Hebrews 3 to make that point, but probably not this passage. His point simply is this, that now is the time that the offer of reconciliation has been made. Go back to chapter 5 and in verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is now made available. This is the time of salvation the prophet had talked about in Isaiah. Now is the time. In other words, now includes until the day of judgment, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day of judgment, Acts 17, 30 and 31. So in other words, he said, take advantage of it now because now the opportunity is made available. This is the period of salvation. So don't embrace the grace of God and do so in vain because now is the time to be saved and that may run out. So don't make, uh, don't, 
don't uh, take advantage of it now and don't waste the grace of God that has been given unto you. So walk worthy. That is demanded of us as ministers. Now, as a part of that, let's go to verses 3 to 10. His point here is to be blameless in all things. So let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, But we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Now here's where Paul's talking about himself. But the principle would apply to us, certainly. This is part of his self-defense of the ministry or of his apostleship. He said, but we give no offense in anything. Why, Paul? That our ministry may not be blamed. In other words, here's what Paul wants. He wants to do nothing that gives offense. But offense means to cause others to sin or others to stumble or others to go astray. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to leave an impression of anything. I don't want to do anything or, or act in any way that somehow may lead someone to stumble. What he's saying is this, that I want to make sure that I do nothing so that others have room to find fault and thus destroy my work. Now read the verse again in that light. Then he said, we give no offense in anything. Why? That our ministry may not be blamed. What I'm focusing on is my service to the Lord and the ministry of the gospel. That's what I'm focusing on. So I don't want to do anything over here that causes someone to stumble and not embrace the gospel. I don't want to do anything over here that causes someone to find fault with my work of the ministry. I'm focused on ministering to the Lord and serving the Lord. That's what I'm focused on. So now then, he develops that in this area. Let's back up before we look at that chart. Let's go back to verse 4 and 5. I want you to, to get the picture here. Let's read verses 5. Uh, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and 8, and even 9. And, and, and that's going to sound kind of confusing as we go through that, and we're going to come back and sort all that out. So let's get verse 4. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. There's the service we've been talking about. In much patience and tribulation and needs and distresses, in stripes and imprisonments and tumults, in labors and sleeplessness and fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by longsuffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and yet behold we uh, live, as chastened yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Well, that was a mouthful. Let's see what we have there. I borrow this chart from Curry's commentary on 2 Corinthians, but he divides these, basically not everything that's mentioned here, but into two sections, and we're going to divide it into three, but I want to look at his two. I like what he's done right here. And that is, Paul for, focuses on the hardships that he endured and the virtues by which he endured them. Now, what's his point? Let's get to the point to the Corinthians, and then we'll talk about the point for us then we'll come back to this. What is his point to the Corinthians? His point to the Corinthians is this. Look at what I have endured. Look at what I have gone through so that my ministry would not be blamed. Verse 3 is your key to understanding 3 to 10. I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything so that someone could find fault with my ministry. I want to make 
sure I do nothing so as to cause someone to stumble. So look at what all I have endured and how I endured it. Look at the hardships and the virtues that I have exhibited. Not to heap praise upon Paul, but I did that for your sake that the ministry may not be blamed. Now what does that mean to us? Look at what Paul endured so that his ministry wouldn't be blamed and what a challenge that is for us. If he was willing to go through this with this attitude, have this spirit in the midst of this problem, then what a challenge for us. As we go through problems, we think, nothing like what Paul did, but we think we have problems. If we exhibit that same attitude, we should be doing that, that the ministry may not be blamed. Now let's go back to this list. What Paul says here is, look at the hardships that I endured. I went through afflictions and necessities, distresses and imprisonments and tumults and labors and fastings. We'll come and talk about what all those are in just a second. But here is the virtues that I exhibited in that. While all of this was going on, there was pureness and patience and knowledge and kindness and love and truthfulness. And I depended on the power of God and I had the armor of righteousness. So what does that mean to us? In the same kind of turmoil, we should have that same spirit that he describes here. So let's divide that out a little more in detail. Let's talk first of all about the area of blamelessness. That's found in verses 4 and 5. The areas of blamelessness. And so he lists these in verses 4 and 5. Here's the areas of which, in which I was blameless. And he mentions the following in verses 4 and 5. Time would forbid us to give great details on each one, but I want to just get the gist of what he's talking about. And that is, here is this patience, that is his endurance. Your footnote, if you have a marginal reference in your Bible, you might find a footnote at the word patience, and at least in the New King James, trace that over to your center reference column, endurance. That's what he's talking about. So in other words, I endured all kinds of problems, persecution, afflictions, etc. There was tribulation. Tribulation gives the idea of of oh, something weighty. It wasn't just a, a light burden, but it was a weighty burden. It was, it was pressing down upon me. Furthermore, there were needs. There were times he did without. There were times he suffered because of a lack of his needs being supplied, as we see in Philippians 4. There were distresses, hardships that he went through. There were stripes. He was beaten. Forty stripes save one, he said in chapter 11. There were times he was imprisoned. Prison more than once. There were tumults. That's the idea of riots, uprising, chaos. He said, I went through all of that because of his work. Not that he happened to walk right in the middle of chaos and tried to teach him the gospel. It was his teaching of the gospel that created the chaos, or the opposition to his teaching at least. There are ideas of labor. What's interesting here, Trench observes, not so much the actual exertion with which a man makes, he probably is talking, as some have suggested, about his laboring and his work and take, making tents and the physical labor that he did. But Trent says not so much the actual work that he labored, but the lassitude and weariness which follows on the straining of all the powers to the utmost. In other words, he was, he was working hard and working himself to death and working his fingers to the bone so that he could preach the gospel, not just merely to make a living, but he was doing that so he could preach. So look at what I endured, he said. Furthermore, sleeplessness, your translation may say watchfulness, means he watched because he couldn't sleep. Many nights he couldn't sleep because of his concern and care for the churches. And then there was fastings. 
That might have been times where he set a time aside that he wanted to fast, but more likely where he fasted because he didn't have to eat. He did without. Look at what I endured. This is a hardship. Not that he self-imposed, but things that he suffered. So here is areas of blamelessness. That is, I, I tried to live right and do right in the midst. Look at all, all I endured. Now then, verses 6 and 7, he talks about the characteristics of blamelessness. In other words, here were those virtues in the midst of this blamelessness. Now this is where it gets interesting to me that he talks about various principles here that are involved. What? Like what? Well, he first of all mentions purity, chastity. That may have reference to moral purity, as some have suggested. But it may have to do more with his chaste conduct and his purity of character. That I tried to have a pure character, not only of moral purity, but of my character was pure as I tried to go through all the, the sufferings that I went through. Knowledge? Well, that probably has reference to knowledge that he receives from God, the insight of God's revelation that guards and protects his proper behavior, that is listening to the revelation of God. I don't think he's saying that God implanted knowledge in my mind and that automatically made me do what was right, but receiving knowledge from God, gaining the knowledge from God's revelation, enabled me to make the right decisions. And that's true of all of us. The knowledge of God's Word enables you to make the right decisions in the midst of adversity. So quite often we make wrong decisions based on wrong knowledge. So he said through knowledge and also long-suffering. In other words, I was willing to patiently suffer through the problem's kindness. That is, rather than, than retaliate toward those who were, who were ungodly to him, there was kindness. There's a question about the Holy Spirit here. Does this have reference to the Holy Spirit in the sense of the Holy Ghost or the Holy, some translations say Holy Ghost, King James, that is the third member of the Godhead? Or is it talking about a spirit that is holy? And some good argument is made that it may be the spirit that is holy because it is right in the flow of here's a spirit that's right, kindness, and another spirit of love, and this is another spirit, a, a spirit that's holy. But it probably does have reference to the Holy Spirit, and I won't go into all the arguments pro and con on that. But if it does talk about the Holy Spirit, I don't think he's saying the Holy Spirit automatically just guided him. But in other words, he follows the teaching of the Spirit. So following the guidance of the Spirit helped me through all of this problem. Then there is sincere love. And then there is the word of truth. Probably not talking about the gospel being the word of truth, though it is. But as the English Standard translates, that truthfulness of speech. That is, one of my characters, through all the turmoil I went through and tried to be blameless, I was truthful in my speech. I was just honest. I said what was right. I never misled. And then there is the power of God. What does he mean, the power of God? That he was dependent not upon himself, but he was dependent upon the power of God. Notice back in chapter 3 and in verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5, our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, he said. So I never depended on my own strength. I was always dependent on the power of God. And then he says, there's the armor of righteousness at verse 7. The armor of righteousness, what's that? Well, it probably has to do with, with arming ourselves, with being right before God and living right before God. And then he says, notice the phrase that he uses to follow that. Look at verse 7. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. In other words, when you're armed with righteousness, you're prepared to meet the attack from any quarter. 
So whether it comes from the right hand or on the left hand or the attack is on this side or on that side, whether you have to be offensive or defensive, whatever the case may be, you're armed to do that. So how did Paul, what were some of the characteristics of his blamelessness? Purity and knowledge, long-suffering, armor of righteousness, truthful speech, etc. Now then, the third section of being blameless in all things is the contrasting views, 8 through 10. Notice the wording of verses 8 through 10 is quite different than the rest of the list. So what's it about? Well, he talks about these contrasts that you see on the screen before you. There is honor versus dishonor. His wording is by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, unknown and yet known. What's that all about? Well, he's probably talking about different views that those who were his opponents that the letter is about and those that were accepting of the fact he was an apostle and those who were true faithful children of God who would embrace the apostle Paul, here are different views that people have of our ministry and our work. With some, it is viewed with honor, and others view it as of dishonor. Some give an evil report of Paul's work. That's what these false teachers of chapter 11 and verse 13 are about. And some gave a good report. Some accused Paul of being a deceiver. And others said he was truthful. Remember, chapter 1, they said he changed his plan and he deceived us. He hadn't done that at all. Unknown and yet well-known. I don't think he's talking about whether people really know them. The un unknown has to do with being considered as nobodies and well-known that's fully recognized and acknowledged. And to, to his critics, he was unknown. He was, Paul was considered a nobody. He, he, he claims to be an apostle, but he's a nobody. He's unknown. But to those who recognized the miracles that he could work and that he was a true apostle, he was well known. Dying and yet we live. And chastened and yet not killed, those two seemed to go together. That from the standpoint of his critics, they, had, they wanted to kill off the apostles, and especially the apostle Paul, and yet they still live. They wanted to kill off his message, and yet it still lives. We're chastened. He viewed the suffering he went through as a chastening, and yet we haven't been killed. Sorrowful and yet rejoicing. Paul was made sorrowful by many things that happened to him and much of what he, he faced among the church at Corinth. And yet he was rejoicing. Even in this letter, he rejoiced over the, the results of the first letter. As poor and yet making many rich. That is, we're viewed as pure, poor and yet we are able by, through the gospel to make others rich in faith. And furthermore, he ends that by saying, having nothing and yet possessing all things. We didn't have a dime we don't have a thing, we don't have any material goods, and yet we possess everything that's really important. So here are contrasting views of living blameless before God. Now then, verses 11 to 13, to finish that section, we're still talking about walking worthy, verses 1 to 13. There is an appeal to open your hearts to the Corinthians. What's his appeal? Look at verse 11. He first of all says, our heart is wide open. He said, O Corinthians, how we have spoken openly to you, and our hearts are wide open. In other words, our heart is wide open to you. But there's a problem somewhere. Where is the problem? Well, verse 11, verse 12 says, any restrictions or lack is not on our part, it's on your part. In other words, our arms are open to you, Corinthians. Speaking of Paul and his work and his ministry. But there seemed to be a problem that was influenced by these false teachers of chapter 11. And what does he say at verse 12? 
Well, verse 12 says, you are not restricted by us, but you were restricted by your own affections. Problems with you and something lacking on your part. So here's the appeal, verse 13. Have the same heart toward me that I have toward you. And I speak to you as to children. I'm, I'm appealing to you as my children. They were his children in the sense he had taught them the gospel, and I make an appeal to you as to my own children. Have the same attitude and open heart toward me and embrace me as I try to embrace you. His point in verses 1 to 13 is, here's the demands of the ministry to walk worthy. I've tried to walk worthy. I've tried to walk blameless. And I'm asking you to do the same. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Follow this example that I have set, and I make an appeal to you. Open your hearts and continue to walk blameless. Let's finish the chapter now, 14 to 18. Another demand of the ministry is to live separate from the world. We saw in chapter 4 to renounce worldly practices. But here's the idea of living separate from the world. So what does he say about living separate from the world? What's his point? Well, first of all, verse 14. One of the more familiar phrases in the whole chapter. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This passage is not talking about the marriage to an unbeliever, though often quoted in that context, where someone will say, I tell you what, um, you shouldn't marry that non-Christian. And I agree with them at that point. And if they give their reason because it's unwise, it's, it's not using wisdom, they could easily lead you astray. I'll agree with them. But when they cite 2 Corinthians 6 and says it's a law, that's not what 2 Corinthians 6 is about. You say, how do you know? I don't know what's not talking about marriage. Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 13 says to continue in that marriage. If you're married to an unbeliever, what do you do about that? Well, let's jump over there just for a moment to get the, the gist of 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and 13. That question was raised by the Corinthians themselves. So look at verse 12 and 13. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman which hath a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So what do you do if you find yourself married to a non-Christian? Stay in the marriage. Don't separate in that marriage. That would be demanded if it was an unscriptural marriage. I've often found it interesting, those who say it's absolutely sinful and wrong, when I say, okay, should they divorce? Them? Well, no, I don't think they should divorce. Well, then you must not think it's wrong. That's not what this passage is talking about. Furthermore, verse 17 of this text says, Come out from among them and be ye separate. This is a yoke that needs to be broken. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but come out from among them and be separate. Separate from them. If you are together with them and you're yoked with them, then be separated from them. So they're not talking about the marriage relationship. So know what he's talking about. So what does it mean to be unequally yoked? It means to be harnessed in an, as an uneven team. You think of a yoke where you take a yoke and you put oxen in them. And any farmer would know if he's going to put a yoke of oxen, if you have a team of horses, you might have a lead horse, as you often do with a team, or a lead mule with a, uh, with a team. That's true, but you don't put a little bitty mule beside a great big mule or a great big horse with a little bitty horse. They're unevenly harnessed. You don't do that. There's a reason for that. We'll see in just a moment. Here's what BDAC says it means. 
Pedax says it means to be unevenly yoked, to be mismated. Not to suggest a marriage relationship, but they're, they're mismatched. Don't be unequally yoked. Be equally yoked. All right? says it means to be mismatched, to be wrongly matched. In other words, you say, let's put some teams together to pull these wagons, and here's a great big horse, about 1,500 pounds, and here's a horse about 500 pounds. Let's put them in the same yoke. That ain't going to work too well. They're mismatched. One's going to drag the other one along. That ain't going to work too well. So you say, well, I've got a 1,500-pound horse and a 1,500-pound horse. Let's put those two together. They're pretty evenly matched. Over here's a 500-pound horse, and here's a 600-pound horse. They're closely matched. Let's put them together. They're evenly matched. So it's the idea of being unevenly yoked, mismatched. It means to pull together in the same harness. So let's go back to our text. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you are a believer and you get into the yoke with an unbeliever, I'm talking about marriage now, and you're pulling the same load with them, then you're mismatched. How are you mismatched? Well, because you're a believer and they're an unbeliever. Y'all don't go, they don't go together just like a 1,500-pound horse and a 500-pound. Don't go together. <laughs> they're mismatched. This is all mismatched is what he's saying. So one, what will happen is one will overpower the other. Just like this 1,500-pound horse is going to overpower that 500-pound horse, they're mismatched. So quite often what happens is if you're yoked together with an unbeliever and you have fellowship and pull together within the load of sin, you're going to be mismatched and they're going to overpower you, lead you in the wrong direction. and Therefore, you receive the grace of God in vain, verse 1. I like what Curry said. This kind of forbidden association in Christ will cause a Christian to plow a crooked fur in the field of faith. When you're trying to plow in your field of faith and you join up with non-Christians and you're yoked with them, you're liable to plow a crooked fur in your field of faith. Don't, don't be surprised if, you're, if your rows begin to get off and, and begin to turn because you're, you're unequally yoked with the unbeliever. That only applies in the marriage in the sense you're pulling together in the same load of sin. But it's not talking about marriage. It's talking about being yoked together with the Christian, non-Christian rather. Now, what do we do about that? He said, have no fellowship with the world. Don't pull together in the same load of sin. So look at verses 14b through 16a. What does he say? He uses several expressions that mean much the same thing. So let's look at the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at verse 14. At verse 14, what communion has light with darkness? What fellowship, first of all, verse 14, has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, the word kanonia, fellowship, is used here. But I want you to get the picture here of five things that he mentions, and all referring to the same. He uses the term fellowship, communion, accord, part, and agreement. This gives me an idea of what fellowship involves. What fellowship involves is having communion, sharing together, joint participation. Fellowship has to do with having accord, agreement, having part together or having agreement together. So he uses terms interchangeably. Those are not all the same word in the original, but he uses these terms interchangeably. The point is this. 
there are some things that are mismatched that don't go together. Remember the harness? You don't put a 1,500-pound horse in with a 500-pound horse. You just don't do that. They're mismatched. So here's another mismatch. Righteousness, following righteousness, following God, following His law, and lawlessness, disregard for the law. They don't go together. Here's another mismatch. Light and darkness don't go together. You've got a dark room, you put some light in it, and that's not dark anymore. They just don't go together. They just don't agree with each other. Christ and Belial, Satan, is a term for Satan. They don't go together. They don't agree with each other. So where one is, the other one is driven out. And here's something else that doesn't agree. A believer with an unbeliever, they're opposites. And the temple of God with idols, they're opposites one with the other. So his argument is, his whole point is, live separate from the world. Don't try to pull the same load of sin with the world. Don't try to participate with the world. Don't try to be one with the world because they don't have fellowship one with the other. They don't agree with one another. Now why are you saying this, Paul? Because, verse 16, B and 18, you're the people of God. Look at verse 16. For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Where is that found? I don't know. For sure. You say, well, I've got a footnote. Yeah, you've got a footnote that will probably say Ezekiel 37, 26. That's probably the quotation. Quite often quotations from the Old Testament are altered slightly because of quoting from the Septuagint and then your translation of your Old Testament passage is from the Hebrew text. So there's that slight variation. Sometimes it's a summary and not a direct quotation. So is it Ezekiel 37? Probably so. Some think it's Leviticus 26 and verse 12. Maybe so. Both of them make the same similar point that I'm your God and you'll be my people. But one of those places is being most likely quoted. You're the people of God. And since you are the people of God, God said, I'll be your God and, and you'll be my people. Since you are the people of God, then you're, not to, you're to live separate from the world. Look at verse 18 now. Verse 18. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since you are my children, you're my sons, then I want you to live pure and separate from the world. Now one more point here, and that is at verse 17. Come out and be separate. Now notice what he's just said. He said, don't be unequally yoked. And don't have fellowship with the world. You're the people of God. But what if we've already been influenced by the world? And they had, 1 Corinthians tells us. They had. What you do is you come out from the world and be separate. Look at verse 17 now. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Now where's that? I don't know, for sure. Um, maybe Ezekiel 20, verse 34. Maybe Isaiah 52, verse 11. Read one commentary and he makes a good argument. That's probably Isaiah 52. Said, I don't think that's Isaiah 52. I really think it's Ezekiel 20. Well, one of those is being quoted here. Doesn't matter to me. But the Lord said, come out from among them. And it's not worded that way in either text, but it's the principle of coming out from the world and living separate from the world. Separate yourself from the world. Come out from among them and be separate. Now, notice I put chapter 7, verse 1 at the end of that because that actually goes with this. Therefore, having these promises, what promises? I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
Chapter divisions are unfortunate at times, and this is one of those. Verse 1 actually goes with the previous chapter. And that is, we need to live separate from the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Now, there's all kind of application can be made of that. If we're going to have to live separate from the world. We can't walk this line of, of with one hand over here with the world and one hand with God. God said, no, you're going to be my people. And I told you to come out from among them and be separate. You're going to be one or the other. You can't walk with one hand with the world, holding on for dear life, maintaining that association, and then hold over here with God. You don't want to lose that. You can't do both. You've got to make up your mind. What are some demands of the ministry? To walk worthy, verses 1 to 13, and to live separate from the world. Decide, I'm not going to have fellowship. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to give my approval. I'm not going to give my endorsement. I'm not going to see those things continue on and pull together in the same load of sin. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're a subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?